Yo, it's Elliot Wilson. Check me out, man. Great interview with my guys at the Fly Fidelity Podcast. 30 years, man. Let's talk about it. First, First I say, say, what we're going to do. Then, then you say, say, I don't know. What do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do. do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Welcome to the program. This week, we're joined by pioneering hip-hop journalist Elliot Wilson. From beatdown to ego trip, to the source, to double XL, to rap radar, and beyond. We'll be talking about his unique journey, disrupting the media space for over two decades in an intimate sit-down with the GOAT himself. Enjoy the conversation. Mercy. When did magazines enter your life as a fan personally? And at which point did you start thinking about turning your passion for hip hop into purpose professionally? Well, I think a lot of my career was first uh, interest in sports and then it turned to music. So I remember, you know, collecting like Sports Illustrateds and, you know, even boxing magazines and, and things of that. And then as we get into like the late 80s and the excitement around hip hop, I started noticing, like, I remember one of the big things I saw was uh, Run DMC on the cover of Rolling Stone. And I was so proud and excited because, you know, Run DMC was like the biggest influence of me uh, personally. You know, they're from Queens, where I'm from, and, you know, the power of hip hop music. They were kind of the first group to really break the barriers down and show that this was a phenomenon that was like not just a New York phenomenon, but a nationwide, worldwide phenomenon. So I remember that. I remember like the early coverage of hip hop and spin um and liking that john leland's column and things of that nature and then then the source magazine emerged and i saw that and i I was like that's really cool like how do i become part of that like i would love to be at that time the music editor that was my only career goal i wanted to be music editor because the music editor got all the records before they came out in my mind and they gave out the ratings which were the mics which you know were the coveted uh ranking system back then so i used to look at Reginald C. Dennis's column, the Dennis Files, and I was like, I can do that. I want to do that. I want to, I want to work at the source. I want to get the albums before anybody else. I want to give the mics out. Like that was really like the the biggest inspiration. And then you know, at that time, uh, not understanding there's an industry and certain contacts you had to have. Um, so I wrote a letter, I think, and I got rejected. <laughs> and but at the same time, that's when I met um, Sasha Jenkins who had just started an independent hip-hop newspaper called Beatdown. This is like 1992. And um, 
we became friends and I started working for the independent um, magazine he had started called Beatdown. So that's how I got, that's how I began my career. Now going back to the source, of course, you mentioned the significance of the sources, this national publication covering the culture back then. What was it about the source that worked for you as a fan that inspired you to drive your vision of being a writer forward? What would have been the first piece of writing within our magazine that had a real major impact on you? I think it was even just the covers and just the fact that it felt like there was finally a magazine just for us, for hip hop culture. Um, and that it covered, again, covered the wide range that, you know, it would give Luke a cover or Too Short a cover, Ice Cube a cover, uh, East Coast artists a cover. You know what I mean? It just showed the range and power of our music. And it just made me feel like, okay, this is like, you know, and I mean, they called it the Bible and rightfully so. It felt like it was the first, um, I know overseas there was a, uh, what was it, Hip Hop Connection in London? HHC, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I knew about HHC later on, but I mean, obviously, I think HHC may have actually been out before the source, but in America, um, you know, the source was the first thing we knew about. So, you know, we called it the Bible. It was kind of treated as such. And yeah, I just felt like that's where it's at. That's where it's it's it's, it's the thing that's really going to document this music that I love and, and what's going on, you know, not understanding that, you know, okay, well, there's other things you could do your own thing. And I'm thankful that I met Sasha because then I realized I could be entrepreneurial and you create your own voice. You can get your own voice out there. You didn't necessarily need the validation of an outside force. You could you could have the ability to create your own uh, magazine, distribute it yourself, um, and get your voice heard out there. And how would you describe living in Queens at that time? And and, and what was it about Queens that was so significant to your identity? Well, I think I, think I definitely grew up in the projects in uh, Woodside, Queens. Um, you know, Queens were kind of like the the outer borough where it's like, uh, you know, the, we're not to look at it as the cool as the cool borough sometimes. Like the Brooklyn guys are cool or the Harlem guys are flashy. You know, we're like, you know, a little bit more lower middle class. And, you know, some of us live in our mama's basement and all these type of things. And I think we have this little kind of chip on our shoulder that we're like the, actually the smartest and the coolest guys. And, you know, you obviously look at hip hop's connection to Queens and 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 uh, foundational things that Run DMC and LL built. So there's just a lot of pride coming from Queens. We kind of feel like we're the underdog, you know, and think that's energy comes across in the art, you know, from from Nas to Mob Deep to Fifty Cent. Um, so I think that yeah, this is that spirit of Queens of like we're that borough that like we get to it, you know. Queens get the money, you know. Like we, there's money making Manhattan, where I think there's the is the area where you look at what success is of being a New York City kid. But, you know, Queens, we're like, we're the, we're the hustlers. We get that money. We Queens, we get the money. And like that sort of drive that, you know, we're going to succeed in life and we're going to like, you know, get that nice apartment and the big house in Queens or this nice apartment in Manhattan and, and be successful. So even though I grew up, you know, poor, lower middle class, uh, I thankfully had both my parents and I felt like I could be successful. I could get out of this condition and you know, build a good life, whatever, whatever it was going to be. And, you know, just sort of having that drive from an early age. Talking to this cutie on FaceTime, trying to figure out if she going to give me that FaceTime. I don't want to talk. I want to chill with my son more. Teach him about Egypt and tranquility. Critically analyze black lives and respectability. Why prodigy mural get vandalized? Why prodigy? The project politics, obviously. Demagogue, democracy in the fog. I see the mob representing into the light. Back to the source where all energy comes. Your enemy done was eternal. A disease that needs a vaccination. Plagues black seeds in the industry. Ain't as friendly as it first seems when you dream of driving your whip to your house in Florida Keys. On behalf of me and Queens and all of the G's. Bandana P. 
will always stand as tall as the trees. First things first, this should be understood. Queensbridge, just ain't any other hood. His music legacy is incredibly high pedigree. Run DMC kind of like came in the door with Sucker MCs was a new sound. And I feel like in some ways they killed all the old school stuff that came before it. Like I liked, you know, Grandmaster Flash of the Furious Five and Curtis Blow and Spoonie G and, you know, Treacherous Free and those groups. But I didn't feel my personal connection to those groups. I recognized the art was great and it was exciting. And when Rapper's Delight came out, I wanted to write every rap on there and, and learn all the rhymes and teach it to my friends. But um Something about when Run DMC came in with this sort of new sound, it just felt like, oh, this, these are our, these, this is us. This represents us. This is like our peer group. We're the new voice. Like we're the new generation. Um, it just felt like immediate, uh, immediate disruption and the competition of, you know, they, they were saying that the canality, they say they're the kings of rap. They were saying they're the kings of rock. You know, like that level of ambition of like, you know, this hip hop thing needs to be heard. I think so much would gets lost now because hip hop's become such a um, dominant force in pop culture is that really in those early years we felt very much like uh in defense of hip-hop and 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 driven to prove that we were an art form that was here to stay that we weren't just some fad that it wasn't going to be some short run for us that we you know like we weren't disco we were like our art form that was like bred from our communities and you know, we were going to achieve success and 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 it was going to be not this thing that fizzles out in a couple of years. So, you know, Run DMC, I remember watching their early interviews and it, then the interview, they're like, well, Run DMC, is hip hop here to stay? And they'd be like, hip hop is here to stay. And it's just like, you know, we kind of <laughs> carried this energy of like, we believe in this thing so much. And, but I also, you know, I did feel the competitiveness. I thought Run DMC was better than the Fat Boys and better than Houdini and better than, you know, those groups. And, you know, LL Cool J came in with the idea of like, you know, there were solo rappers before him, you know, like I said, Curtis Blow or Spoonie G or, you know, great rappers like Grandmaster Kaz or Melly Mel. But LL came with that energy of like, I'm the new king, Mel Okuje. You know, it's, I'm I'm bad. Like, it's just a new, there's a new era now. You know, these are our leaders. And, you know, I think that that's, and I think that all competitiveness really to me, like we were saying earlier, that I think it does connect with sports. Like sports was this thing that I loved as a kid, uh, baseball growing up and, thinking I could be a professional baseball player. Um, and I think that competitiveness is also, you know, connected to my love of sports. And, you know, I definitely then also saw the competitive nature in, in hip hop music itself. Let's talk about the starting line for you in your career. Let's talk about where it starts as you, as a journalist and media mogul competing. You eventually end up being introduced to the co-founders of Beatdown. As you said earlier, you meet Sasha, you meet Haji, both of mm -hmm. whom are Queens natives like yourself. Yep. What's the series of events that takes you from being a fan and being a student at the game at this point to becoming a music editor for Beatdown in '92? Wow, um, just my my uh, <laughs> my assertiveness of just really becoming friends with those guys, Haji and Sasha, and us starting to go over each other's houses, and then eventually they got an office in in Long Island City, and then me just you know dedicating myself to to wanting to be a part of what they were doing and understanding that my contribution could be um my knowledge of hip-hop and understanding that you know i feel like i'm this person who loves the music so much and um i could add to what they're doing you know that, that I, again I, I never wanted a leadership position at that point in my career of like i run this magazine i more so wanted to be the one that made sure the magazine was good that it covered the right artists and had the right music in it and had the best reviews and the best articles. And, you know, I was more in a, in a supportive role. And um, 
think the big turning point was uh, for the second issue, I had an interview with, I did, first interview I ever did was with Divine Styler. <laughs> uh wow. for the first issue i did yeah it was a, it was a it was an experimental album he had called spiral walls in the autumn light or something like that so that was that was a testing ground for me like sasha gave me that assignment and i did that story a very short piece and then the next the next issue i had got set up to do an interview with kooji rap you know the great kooji rap um the live or let die album so this is what 92 and the interview was uh, going to be at the cold chilling offices so needless to say, the rap fan in me was very geeked to, to feel like I'm going to go to Cold Chilling. Um, and it was Election Day, 1992, uh, Bill Clinton against the original George Bush. <laughs> and I was in my, I was in my um, Queens College. I was like, going to Queens College. Sasha was going to Brooklyn College, and I was going to Queens College. Okay. Uh, I got my two-year degree at LaGuardia Community College. I was, I was starting my third year. It was early fall to try to go to Queens College and get, a, you know, hopefully a four-year degree. Um, and I'm in a political science class and I'm just bored and it's a double major, double period, early morning. And I can't even concentrate on whatever test I'm supposed to take. I'm just focused on, I'm interviewing Kooji Rap this afternoon. Like nothing's more important. Um, so I walk out of the classroom and I never went back to college. You know, I went to the, <laughs> went to Coach Hillen, I did the interview. Um, and then I just felt like this is this is what I want to do. I don't know. It's the classic thing of like, what am I really learning in college? Like, I think I know what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And I think that, yeah, you know, I'm I'm driven by this and I want to write about this. So then me and Sasha, you know, he think he started, I started fake way dropping out of college and then he started fake way dropping out of college. And then we would just meet during the day and just ideate and come up with ideas. And Haji would do more of the business side of things. And we just got really kind of focused on, okay, well, how can we make this thing successful? How can we make you know, beat down important. And um, again, going back to competitive nature, there was a West Coast uh, hip hop newspaper called Rap Sheet uh, with a guy, Daryl James was the publisher. So we had our own little rivalry there about like, who's the real hip hop newspaper? <laughs> is, it, is it beat down or is it Rap Sheet? So we had our little rivalry, East Coast, West Coast. Um, so yeah, it was just throwing my whole energy into it. It was, it was kind of the first thing I believed in that I felt like also was mine. You know, I felt a part of it, even though I didn't own beat down. I felt uh, ownership to it or a connection to it that I want to put all my energy towards this and, and see where it goes. Speaking of energy, is there a story off the top of your head that you think encapsulates the bond and and, and, and that moment in time working with Sasha? Any standout issues outside of what you just mentioned working for Beatdown back then? Um, I think, I think, you know, just the camaraderie of it. And I think us just really like, I remember just being at us being in this house and listening to these albums and just really studying hip hop. Like it's, listening to these gangster albums, Showbiz and AG, and, you know, just really, like, just dissecting it, just really feeling like here's somebody who loves the music and culture like I do, um, and, you know, this sort of creativity about it and that, you know, the power of it and just, just the experiences of, like, we really did this thing, we put these pages together, we brought it to a printer, um, it came back to us, we have a whole bunch of boxes, we got to go to a warehouse and pick up these boxes, and then we get to unbox it, and then we're going to bring it down to uh, Tower Records and, and give it away for, for putting, stack it up. So hopefully people pick it up for free and look at it. Um, and Patricia Field and all these stores and like putting it there. And then I always remember the feeling of like, you know, you would give out uh, this this product and then you hoped somebody would look at it and want to keep it. So they would, if they liked it, they would fold it and kind of put it in their back pocket. And that was a sign of like almost a transaction, you know, cause we were giving away for free at first. 
And I just remember always wanting that feeling. And if we went to a club and we gave some out and at the end of the night, we saw some of them on the floor, it was kind of disheartening. Like somebody didn't want to take it with them. They just put it on the floor, or just left it on the ground. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, just really feeling this sort of like, I'm doing something that, you know, can go to someone and impact them and and, and really appreciate people that kind of got it and connected to it. You were building a bridge for the culture back then, weren't you? You were truly, this was a foundational point into you really building Ego Trip, of course, as well. What was the tipping point yeah. for launching Ego Trip a year and a half, two years after Beatdown? Uh, well, the tipping point was, you know, you got a very much a bunch of young, ambitious men. <laughs> and Saji, Sasha and Haji had started to not look at things the same way. And uh, me and him have really started bonding closer in our friendship. And it was my idea of saying, hey, you know, Sasha, we should do something different here. Um, let's come up with an idea that, that's different. And, you know, Sasha's interests were wider at my, wider than mine at the time. He was really much into also rock music and skateboarding and graffiti. And we felt like maybe that's our angle. Like there's not a magazine that's not, that's more than hip hop that's doing everything. That's really like hip hop. That the whole idea that to me, hip hop culture is in so many things when, you know what I'm saying? It's in skateboarding, it's in, it's in obviously graffiti. It's in some certain rock music. It's in, you know, the sort of cultural aspect of it. We would see these kids, you know, everybody's listening to uh, Dr. Dre and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, there's no divide. Like there's the audiences, it, these kids in the East Village that we're hanging out with, you know, they listen to everything. Um, and no, there wasn't a magazine that was out of that rap, mag, mag, rap magazine box and wasn't doing something different. So that's where the vision of Ego Trip uh, began. Um, and yeah, I was just, I was excited about it. And, you know, I remember, I remember, um, just the coming up with the name. I was listening to the, the, the De La Soul, the Balloon Mind State album. Uh, we're trying to come up with a name for it. Um, and obviously we knew Ego Trippin', which, you know, Ego Trippin', the Ultra Magnetic song, which was a classic. But something about the way True Goy was saying at the end of the song, Ego Trip, Ego Trip, Ego Trip. I was like, that's it, Ego Trip. Because the Ego Trip thing to me meant, meant like it's not just a hip hop thing. It's just like you have to have a certain ego to put yourself out there as a musician, as a journalist, as as us at that time feeling like we were these brilliant writers that weren't being heard and our voices weren't being heard and, you know, your ego and put yourself out there. But then also the cautiousness of, you know, you can't ego trip, you can't, you know, think you're all that and have no humility and lose your way and just, you know, become arrogant and, and become a loser and like lose your, lose, your, lose your way. So it just felt like something about it just felt like, that's it. That's the name. And we just ran with it. And we were blessed to get um, uh, great relationships with labels at the time. And uh, remember a publicist, Miguel Begir, he was showing us the Nas Illmatic shoot, the, the classic Danny Clinch shoot uh, for Illmatic. And it was like, okay, guys, you know, there's these outtakes from these from this photo shoot. You could pick one of these photos if you want them or, you know, here's 20 photos that they didn't use. And we just were able to kind of pick these out. You know, it sounds ridiculous now, but we were able to pick these beautiful outtake photos from um Danny Clinch for this clap from this classic hip hop album and we used one of them for the cover had other great um shots inside and you know I mean and then also now you to fast forward you know Sasha ends up being a partner with Nas and Mass Appeal in many ways and it just shows you how crazy life is and hip hop is but yeah just just that idea that like it, we knew from jump that Ego Trip felt special and felt different and was kind of distinguishing itself from the, the mass amount of other rap zines that were out at the time, you know? It always felt like Ego Trip was in part 
really poking fun of the artificiality of a lot of magazines at that time. <clears throat> yeah, we wanted to be the most authentic. We wanted to be the most funny, the, the funniest, <laughs> the most funny, the funniest. Um, I think that we brought that sort of humor to it. We sort of was a precursor to the internet culture of like, um, like I said, bringing bringing humor into the into our our discourse and and being critical. And we also we was we was authentic and we were not afraid to, you know, all of our guys weren't afraid to be the ones to write the negative review when reviews back then meant everything. Um, this could impact sales and it made artists upset if you didn't like their records in a way that they would try to find you and maybe physically hurt you. But we were bold enough to be the guys that were willing to write critical things, um, but also prepper with humor, like I keep saying, and just, you know, just kind of representing, you know, intellect, but not not a snobby kind of intellect, you know what I mean? Yeah. Authentic intellect, you know, we always felt like we was trying to find this perfect balance between intelligence and ignorance, you know, like, and, you know, you just had these strong person. I mean, Noah spoke about it. I mean, you look at our guys, it was just an amazing all-star team of creatives, um, Sasha Jenkins, myself, uh, Chairman Mao, Gabe Alvarez, and Brent Rollins came after and really added a whole different, you know, different um level to our, what we were doing you know because now we had the visual component and um just another realm of, of creativity at that time um but yeah we just felt like we were we were the guys that we felt like we was we was the smarter ones and no one was talking about this music the way we could and making and presenting it the way we could and we just carried that confidence and i think that we took it took it very seriously you know the, even the details of like having like the thing where we would put like lyrics at the bottom captions of every page we wanted to find a lyric that kind of fit whatever the content is on that page and just this really right. sort of a super nerdy you know down down to those elements uh that's what we got off on and like and like Noah was saying you know being in the rooms where we're creatively um cracking jokes and and writing content together and trying to come up with the best line to impress each other and building off each other's creativity, you know, just a real kind of writing room kind of uh, feeling to it. And we got off on that and just felt like, you know, we were, and then again, also to go back to the competitive thing, just feeling like we're the outsiders, right? We're not the source. We're not these other people, you know, people may be kind of sleeping on us, but, you know, we believe in what we're doing. We're different. Um, and we're going to, we're going to break through and we're going to make an impact. Who was typically the funniest in the room back then? <laughs> Uh, I think we all took turns. I don't know. We all had our moments. I think we all had our moments. Yeah. You know, I might not, I probably wasn't top one or two at the time. I probably was somewhere probably in the middle at times, but, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, now nah, we all had our moments of, uh, yeah. I think the more so the energy was when, you know, you could kind of build off each other, you know, but definitely just yeah. a very unique, all of us have very different viewpoints on things you know that's why we made it different it was like none of us were like it all in many ways i mean we were good boys other than that we were the, but our, our interest in how we looked at things and, and our humors were kind of very different at times and but we we'll find that we we'll find that connect, connectivity you know As somebody driven by that space of service and collaborating, what kind of impact did Ego Trip have on you in shaping your voice as a critic? 
Oh, I think it's it's still everything to me. It's it's my foundation. Um, I think nothing happens without that. Um, it built everything. It built my confidence up to feel like I could, you know, achieve my goals, which was still somewhat in the back of my mind, you know, being music editor of the source, which I did do after, you know, after two years of doing Ego Trip, I got that gig that I wanted to get and still stay with Ego Trip and still dedicated myself to that. Um, moving on then to Double XL and still have an Ego Trip. And, you know, you know, when Noah was telling the story about like how I'm achieving this craziness of like this whole um 50 Cent Eminem Drake cover, but at the same time, I got this Ego Trip book out. And it's like, I have all this craziness going on at one time. I, I almost kind of forget that, that th those were all kind of running at the same time. You know, it's amazing like that, you know, I was very proud that I was able to kind of pursue my own personal goals, but at the same time, um, stay committed to my brothers and my team and, and us for to continue to grow in different ways because, you know, at that time, their interest in hip hop wasn't as strong as mine. So that's why we kind of went more in that racial direction. And I believed in what we were doing and, you know, find that balance in us, you know, creating the white rapper show and something that was really impactful at the time. Um, so, yeah, I think it's all it always was the part of the DNA of everything that I did. And even to this day, um, entrepreneurial after that is, you know, starting Rap Radar, you know, starting a blog, which was the same way I would have started a zine back with, you know, Ego Trip. So, yeah, I think it connects to everything that I do. Uh, Ego Trip is my foundation and I'm, and I'm always going to be super proud of it and feel like. Um, it needs to be respected and and hopefully make sure people, because um, we were saying earlier before we got on the call, I've obviously had a very long ass career, but hopefully, you know, people connect all the dots and understand that that is, that is a very important part of who I am to this day and connect the dots that this is a, you know, 30 plus career that, that starts really with that foundation. Vibe magazine goes on to become a pivotal point for you in your journey in that it's where you learn to turn critical thinking into transformation as a writer. How did you get to Vibe magazine? I started writing for Vibe. We had met Rob Kenner, uh, editor over there. Me and Sasha had met him and um, he took a liking to us and he started giving us work and assignments. And then I met my future wife, Danielle Smith. Um, she was music editor and she pretty much taught me a lot about writing record reviews and how to structure them. You know, I was coming in all opinion. I knew what I liked and why I didn't like it. And I was, wasn't afraid to say it, but I didn't really, I wasn't as polished on like structure and how to present my thoughts and, and expound on being constructive in my criticism. And she taught me a lot. I remember she had a thesaurus on her desk and I was like, I need to have one of those. What's that? A thesaurus? I need to, one of those. So I remember buying the same thesaurus that she had. And um, yeah, I think that I owe a lot to her learning that uh sharpening my skills as what I felt a, a critic was because it was very important to me record reviews were very important to me back then that's what that was those were my cover stories I was a little at that time I was a little little shy about uh big profile writing and feeling like I had the confidence I felt that might have been Sasha's strength more than mine so I was more about focused on the music and this really like accurate whether it's 100 words whether it's 300 words whether it's 600 words 700 words it's like really you know great review or really well-written review that really tells you what this record is and what, what it means for this artist and where does it fit in the canon of what's going on right now in the music. And I took it very seriously and, and Danielle taught me a lot. So and I took that energy towards that um, and then just kept free, freelancing more and more and then eventually got the Source gig, the music editor gig at the Source. 
Check this out. Hip-hop Bible. Hip-hop, hip-hop Bible. Get a free trial issue of The Source magazine and reserve your free T-shirt designed by PNB Nation. Call 1-888-THE-SOURCE. The Source gives you the latest music previews and reviews, in-depth interviews, exclusive photos, and more, all from the hip-hop perspective. Without that Source, I don't know what I'd be doing, man. Call now for your free trial issue. Then get 11 more issues, 12 in all, for just $12. You save 66% off the cover price. Or cancel, and you don't know what's the thing. Remember, you get your Source Awards t-shirt designed by PNB Nation free with your paid subscription. You can only get this t-shirt with this offer. Call now to get the next issue of The Source free. 1-888-THE-SOURCE. And The Source is definitely shaped up into being one of the most influential and powerful magazines in the world. The Source is the ultimate hip-hop magazine. A year of The Source plus a free Source Awards t-shirt for just $12? You can't beat that. Call now. When I get to the source, everything. I remember the, the, the meeting with uh, someone Hines hired me, and I think Dave Mays, uh, at the time, he he. I don't think he he didn't like that I still had ego trip. I wasn't going to give up ego trip. You know what I'm saying at the time, and uh, but someone had kind of already hired me, so I think it jumped. We had a little bit of tension because I think he didn't. I think he thought he wasn't sure that I that I necessarily owned ego trip or I was part of it like that. So you know, at the time, I thought, hey, the source is way more established. It's no big deal. I'm still going to do this thing. But looking back on it, the source was popular, but they weren't the national, you know, magazine juggernaut that they would become yet. They were still indie themselves. They just were a bigger indie than Ego Trip. You know, at the time, I didn't know that. I felt like they were way more established uh, than they were. Um, so, yeah, that whole transitional period, I mean, nothing stops with that. Everything is still me doing this job. But at the same time, like Noah was saying, like, you know, off hours being at the Ego Trip office and us, you know, creating content. Yeah. How do you manage that? How do you manage that expectation? <laughs> well, so much of my life before, you know, again, going back to Danielle, uh, getting engaged in 2003, getting married in 05, I was very much a workhorse and somebody who just was drawing themselves into their work. And that's where I got everything from. I got all my ups and downs and um, just this insane work ethic and just feeling like this is the thing I want to do and, and turning my hobby into my life and my my job. I didn't look at it like a job in a sense. I looked at it like it's my life and I just didn't know no other way to do it. And everything else played secondary to that, you know, my emotional availability to people and, and everything. It just was about pouring myself into this stuff and creating this content and um, being driven by it. You know, that's really what it was about. Learning in real time, right? Yeah, and, le- and growing with it. Yeah, learning how to build a business, same time being part of a business that was growing. Like, you know, like I said, I was at the source and I'm seeing that business grow. And at the same time, I'm trying to build my business um, and realizing the, the 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 ups and downs of being an entrepreneur and and what it takes to do that. You know, I never felt like I wanted to have this sort of like uh, non-creative job, like work at a bank or something like that. I wanted to do something that I believed in and I was passionate about. And it just was that natural progression that when it stopped being sports, it became hip hop music. And that now there's a business behind it. And we were growing with that. And that's the thing too, because even when we look at the whole thing of like, when I speak of, when we speak of like the death of uh, Biggie and Pac, what comes after Biggie and Pac uh, passing, you know, and, and shaking our whole world by the biggest guys passing away, you know, within six months of each other. You know, it goes back to that same energy of like, oh, my God, is hip hop here to stay? Is is this thing over? Like, you know, the energy is like, you know, we're all heartbroken. And then, you know, we recover. And as you go into the late 90s and the 2000s, the business gets bigger than ever. You know, by the time of the double XL, 
you know, there's way bigger budgets and the business is bigger and bigger than ever. And the business is flourishing. You know what I mean? And just, you know, just understanding I was with the business when it was first, you know, being formed and just seeing how things would grow and like wanting to be more than just a creative at that time and really caring about the business part of it and really going, you know, every Monday to my circulation manager and seeing how many magazines I was selling in, in, in Roanoke, Virginia or <laughs> Connecticut and like have the breakdown of like what I was doing. And it was, you know, I wanted to do things that were like going to be as big as it could be, but also, you know, still be authentic. What about the five mic system? What about that half to <laughs> five mic system back then? It really meant something to artists and you were the guy handing out those mics. Yes, absolutely. Well, the first story is the first, uh, I get, I get told that, uh, my job is to gather all the albums that are going to be reviewed. Uh, and back then, you would get an advanced cassette. Um, I get the advanced cassette. I dubbed copies for about four to five other editors. It was my job to distribute that. Um, and then I would call a meeting. Let's say these are the seven artists we were going to do reviews on. And, you know, hopefully you guys have all listened to the tapes I gave you. I gave you. Um, and I would... Uh, assign I would assign the the I would also pick a reviewer assign the review to the freelance writer most times if it wasn't somebody on staff um, get that person a copy that person would write a review I'd, I had to have my input over that review and edit it and um, decide on the rating you know the writer's uh, view of the rating would be taken into consideration but ultimately it was it was first my decision about what the rating would be and then in that meeting with the other editors, I would present the section to them and say, this is what I'm thinking, this album, this many mics, blah, blah, and present it that way. So we had a, uh, we, I was supposed to call this meeting and the first meeting, it was like, I think an April issue. So it was the early part of the year when there's not a lot of exciting albums out. You know what I mean? Usually <laughs> the year takes a while to get going. Right. So I think Warren G was a lead review and Coolio and these artists that not a lot of people really cared as much about. So I remember someone saying, well, I, I called the meeting. I remember going to the conference room and nobody was really coming into the conference room. And I'm just like, wait a minute, didn't I call a meeting and da, 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 nobody shows up. So then I stay in there for about 10 minutes. Nobody shows up. I go into someone's office. I'm like, hey, someone, um, I was having a um, music meeting. But he's like, oh, Al, um, yeah, I mean, I think I called it off. I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a, it's a light month. You know, you, you got it this month, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, well, in my mind, I'm like, I'm never doing this meeting again. <laughs> I'm never, I'm never doing this meeting again. And to my word, I didn't. And I more so made it about uh submitting it to Selwyn and getting Selwyn's approval. And I guess at times Selwyn, the editor-in-chief, would check with Dave Mays, the publisher, but that was unbeknownst to me. And that's kind of how a lot of the ratings were done during my era, at least. So that's that's how it went down. And, you know, the the, thing, the incident that leads to me quitting the source in a huff is because um, they changed the mics on me. They changed the review of Corrupt's album and I think a Shaq album, but really it was the Corrupt album that I was mad about. Um, and they had changed the ratings on it. And I remember confronting Selwyn about it um, and saying, you know, what's going on? It was a three and a half. It's, it says three, but I mean, it says three and a half. It was supposed to be a free. I forget if it was exactly it's that. And then someone's like, he didn't tell you. And I'm like, what do you mean he didn't tell me? It's like, he I told Dave to call you and Dave didn't call you. Dave didn't call me. So then I called Dave and then Dave was on, you know, back then we had this like <laughs> uh, big office and the editorial side of the business would be on one side of the office. And we had this big door and the business people would be on the other side of the office and this locked door. 
And Dave Mays walked all the way down from the business side, all the way down to the editorial side. And I lost, I lost it on him and, you know, complained and stuff and quit in the huff. And that begins the whole, uh, I'm going to go to XXL and try to destroy you narrative that started because I definitely felt like they had changed the mics. And not only was I upset that I felt it was uh, inaccurate and a travesty, I wasn't respected enough to be told that, hey, I'm your boss. I'm changing this. I don't care if you like it. Enjoy your day. <laughs> he didn't he didn't give me that grace. So then, you know, things went a little left after that. When you think about corruption now, <laughs> I never think about corruption. <laughs> <laughs> when you thought about it after the fact, had your opinions changed in any way? Did oh, you ever revisit the album? No, I don't think I did. Not in a real way. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think. Again, I think it's it's a it's probably a minor point. I don't, I don't think anybody thinks it's a, a four mic album, as far as I, I recall, right? So, yeah, yeah. probably changing it from three and three and a half to three wasn't the biggest craziness. I don't know if he gave it a four. I can't remember. So it wasn't like he gave it a five mics and it was really a two. So I mean, looking back on it, it probably was could have been worked out. But I just think I had a lot of like again. I'm coming from ego trip. I'm coming from integrity and um and this sort of still earnestness even though there's an edge to it um you know i'm not this pure innocent but at the same time i believe things are supposed to be done the right way and again i respect business so if he would have said to me hey you know this is a relationship i have you know we feel like we got to do this here um then i have a decision to make right you know can i accept that and but i at least respect it more i just felt like you know, I, I backed myself into a corner of like, this guy doesn't respect me. And then he didn't already was uneasy with me. And I don't, I don't feel like I belong here. Like, I, I felt like at that point, I'm trying to force myself to belong at this place, but I don't really belong here, you know, like, yeah. because what I think this magazine is um, and what I think it's looked at from the public isn't really what it is. You know what I mean? It isn't moving with integrity. It's not ego trip. It's not right. something that like prides itself on the the readership first. It prides itself on these industry relationships and and contacts and pleasing them and these favors for favors kind of energy. Um, that's why when I went to Double XL, I, I did I took such an extreme opposite approach of anti-label, anti. You can't even speak to me. You won't even talk to me. You can't even get me on the phone unless it's time to to do a deal. Um, you're gonna have to talk to my to my young staff to get to me. Um, I'm not gonna allow myself to be manipulated or do something I don't believe in as a as a fan first or as somebody who knows this music first um so I think all those realizations kind of came at the time you know that this this sort of dream job wasn't the dream job I thought it was and you know I don't regret it. I, it's funny because I left and they, they called me I remember going to I remember it was just, it always always relates back to ego trips I remember going back to the house and I lived with Gabe at the time me and Gabe Alvarez were, were roommates in Brooklyn and um I remember they was calling me on my phone. We had two phones back then, landlines. <laughs> in my room, I had a phone. He had a room. He had a phone, phone in his room. They're calling my phone, asking me, did I did I quit or was I fired? Because they didn't they didn't know what to say. Like they didn't really fire me. So is this a resignation? Right. Uh, did we terminate you? I was like, no, I resigned. I resigned. So basically, me and you don't have to pay me no money. I quit. I resigned. Blah blah. And then maybe hours later, Gabe's phone keeps ringing. And then I come to find out later, they were literally calling Gabe to start the process of maybe trying to interview Gabe for the gig. <laughs> wow. 
Unbelievable. That's our business, right? That's our business, you know? So exciting times. Well, you talked about curating a new audience with Double XL. And yeah. I was really curious as to not only what the origin story is behind YN, but how do you go about balancing pleasing your audience with challenging your audience simultaneously? I think I wanted to capture the audience. I felt, again, I felt like I know who the source's audience is and they're not as connected to the audience as I think they should be. So I feel like there's some, there's an audience out there that's not, that doesn't really have this sort of Bible and that, that uh, really reflects the state of hip hop right now and what's going on. And I have to go about it that way. And I have to prove that like, we're, 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 what this magazine should have grown to be, you know? And that was really actually the original premise of the, of the, of the gentleman that started it. Uh, Source alumni, um, Reggie Dennis and James Bernard and people like that. Um, they were the foundational people that were the first idea of XXL. And the tagline they had was hip hop on a higher level. And I like that. Like a lot of elements that, that came before me, I changed. I pretty much, pretty much probably changed 90% of the things they were doing. But things like that, like calling it hip hop on a higher level and things like that, I, that spoke to me. And I was like, they have the right idea. They just didn't do the, the, the approach wasn't right. The idea was right, but the approach wasn't right. So my approach was to, to be decisive and go after the things I wanted before the source would. So even though obviously the source was in the number one position that if they wanted to cover, they could get it first. Because again, I was saying them having their industry relationships, they didn't want to pull the trigger fast or want to, didn't necessarily know who they wanted to do as fast as I would decide. So let's say there's like a Ja Rule, Ja Rule's available, Mystical and you know Snoop Dogg, right? Um, the source may not know yet who they want to do on the cover. But I'll try to, my best to get Jaws music first and Mystical's music first or Snoop's music first. And then all of a sudden I'm saying, nah, Mystical, you know, just drawing out an example, this isn't completely accurate, but let's say Mystical and I, and I hear the Shake Your Ass record and I hear these all these Neptune records that I think are going to be fucking huge. So then I'm calling this Mystical's line and his team and I'm bugging them like I'm ready to shoot this cover Friday. So while they're waiting to see if the source will give them a cover, I'm ready to shoot Friday. So that's that's changing the ante that even though I don't have the number one choice, my my energy towards it, my urgency towards it is giving me actually a chance to get it first because I'm making a decision quicker and going for it in a way that they're not ready to commit to because if they want mystical, they get it. You see what I'm saying? So that helped give me a chance to do that. And I just felt like I need to be more in tune with the audience and know what they want and and cover it that way. And I think that leads to something like 50 Cent. So when the 50 Cent happens and he's the sort of king of the underground and he's on all these mixtapes and he's making his own mixtapes and all these sort of things. It's like, we're covering this guy and we're not just going to cover him one month. We're going to find a way to put him in the magazine every month because everyone's talking about this guy. So then if we do a fashion shoot, we ask him, can he do that? We do a car thing. Can he do that? You know, like just finding different ways to keep him in the magazine um, and then it develops that relationship, which leads to, you know, when he finally signs to Eminem and Dr. Dre, that that helps me resolve things with Eminem's camp at the time, which I inherited the conflict, you know, at that time. And, and you know, just, just making that thing of like, I'm more in tune with this audience than those guys at the other magazine. And I'm going to make these decisions. I'm going to see what's going on. I'm going to listen to my team and we're going to go after the things we want. And that's going to help us become the leader in the space. And it took a long time. I mean, I really, I really came into it with a 
innocence and arrogance that it would take me a year or two to really beat them. And nobody thought I could beat them at all. And it really took uh, 2003, that first cover with MJ and 50 to outsell them for one month. But then they went right back to kicking our ass. And it wasn't until 2005 where we distanced ourselves and truly became number one about selling them on newsstands. Was it often where an album and its release being delayed affected many of the covers you might have been planning and preparing for? Well, all those factors, and also I would move. I would move. I would move. I also was maniacal about when I knew they would go to the printer, and I was able to kind of push my printing dates after theirs, so I had more time to make a change at the last minute um than they could um i wanted to i wanted to push the envelope as much as i could to like you said with those delays and releases and you know mind you as you know you're making these decisions month and a half advance in advance or two months in advance um you know sometimes i got burned i remember a scarface cover which was for a classic record the fix um that cover didn't do as well as it could have i think because i did it and then the album got pushed back and then now people look at that scarface album as, as a classic record but um it didn't do as well as it would have because you know so sometimes it would burn you you did the best you could but um to me it was really just about like but yes i know this fixed album is special so you know i'm gonna get that scarface and if i do it first and maybe it doesn't do as well as it could at least i did it first and at that time i'm trying to show that i'm more of the leader in the space and even though my circulation isn't as big as theirs um I'm picking the right people and presenting it the right way. Uh, uh, listen, first the fat boys break up. Now every day I wake up, somebody got a problem with hope. What's up, y'all niggas all fed up? Cause I got a little cheddar and my wreck is moving out the store. Young fucks spitting at me, young rappers getting at me. My nigga big predicted this shit exactly. More money, more problems, gotta move carefully. Cause faggots hate when you getting money like athletes. Young, it's ice grilling me. Oh, you not feeling me fine. It costs you nothing, pay me no mind. Look, I'm on my grind, cousin. Ain't got time for fronting. Sensitive thugs, y'all all need hugs. Damn, little mans, I'm just trying to do me. If the wreck is two mil, I'm just trying to move three. Get a couple chicks, get them to try to do E. Hopefully they're menage before I reach my garage. I don't want much, fuck, I drove every car. Some nice cooked food, some nice clean drawers. Bird-ass niggas, I don't mean to ruffle y'all. I know you waiting in the wing, but I'm doing my thing. Where's the love? There's a roller coaster ride with this guy, Sean Jay-Z Carter. Um who I'm blessed to say I consider a friend at this point of our lives. Um, but it starts, I did his bio, one of the payday, Patrick Moxie, uh, when he did the 12-inch with them. Uh, Vicky Toback, who's going on to document our culture in major ways. She worked at Empire. and An uh, ego that, trip. An ego trip, yes, absolutely. It was a foundational uh, business, ran our business for many years and helped us immensely. When me and Sasha got immersed in our uh, our nine to fives, he was at Vibe and I was at the source. You know, Vicky handled a lot of the business for us. So we always have to show her love for that. Um, so she had, uh, that's the first time I met Jay. Um, and then I did his bio for one of those early things. And then I ran into him at the source. So, so this is a funny story. So I remember seeing um, him at the, uh, I met him at a party. I saw him at a party. I'm at the source magazine. I'm the music editor. And at the time, you know, the firm has all the buzz, right? The firm, uh, you know, Steve Stout, the firm, Nas, 
And, you know, Jay's the underdog with reasonable doubt. Like, it ended up being a classic, but, you know, Nas was obviously more established back then. But um, I started to recognize that, you know, I think this Jay-Z guy is going to, you know, be something. Like, Jazz's guy. Jazz's man, he's going to be a star? Like, you know, like, that's going to happen? I started to really believe it. I remember going to him in a party and was like, yo, Jay, I don't know, you don't know me. I'm Elliot Wilson. Da, da, da. I'm, I'm, I'm at the source. You know, I, I'm, I'm really trying to get you a cover, blah, blah. And he's and he goes, what? He goes, I'm trying to get you, you know, trying to get you in this magazine, trying to get them to recognize, you know, some version of that, trying to get you a cover at the source, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you should do that. I was like, what? He said, like, you should do that. I was like, I should do that. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, all arrogance, right? Like, I should do that. But he was right. I should do that. It was like, but he what you expecting the artist to be like, oh man, thanks. I appreciate that, my man. You know, good looking. Blah, blah. But you know, Jay, Jay led with his ego at that time. So um I get credit for uh the XXL, the first issue with him on the cover of Master P, but that's not my era. That wasn't me. I wasn't there yet. Um right. But they were smart. They foreshadowed the fact that at the time when I was at Source, you know, we ended up splitting the cover with him in the firm. They weren't giving Jay-Z that respect yet. So it was smart for XXL at that time to put Jay on the cover and to recognize him. And I think Rap Pages gave him an early cover. Um, other magazines were stepping up. Um, so again, just like Eminem, when I came into XXL, I didn't have the best relationship with Jay because they weren't really... Um, I mean, oh, actually, I had a better relationship because at least uh, they had given him a cover he shouted out the double XL money uh on the uh in my lifetime album, right? Uh yeah, double right. XL money. Um, so but at the same time, you know, he still there was still the source and still vibe. So I was an underdog. So the only first time I really got him on the cover was with Beanie Siegel. Um, and he wanted to I wanted to do them together on the cover, but he wanted to try to get Beanie his own cover. He had agreed to do the cover with them together, I felt, but then at the last minute he tried to pull the power move on me and not show up to the shoot. So we're in Miami and it's a whole showdown. And then he finally shows up and we shoot this cover with him in the back and it's a classic and it, and it does well. And uh, Bonsu Thompson um, wrote the story and that was the beginning of him coming off those sessions of the blueprint album. And he had recorded those songs. So it's a whole sidebar kind of, um, you know, steering the whole blueprint and letting you know that the blueprint's coming and what's going on. And then from there, the relationship improved and we started getting them on covers. And the big step for me was, was the later years of Double XL where I put myself out there more and I started doing the stories myself. Um, and I did a Jay-Z story, uh, Kingdom Come album. I went with him to Paris um, and covered the comeback at the time. And um, that's how we started having more of a personal rapport because, you know, as I said back then, you know, the Rockefeller era, you did everything through Dame Dash. You know, Dame dealt with media and everything was going through him. So those later years, uh, doing the Kingdom Come, cover, Kingdom Come cover, and then American Gangster I did, um, and he really liked that cover. I did a cover where there were no other cover lines, and I did a, a inspired by Stevie Wonder's uh, Music of My Mind cover, these sort of sunglasses, and you can kind of see the city inside the sunglasses, the sort of uh, dope visual of the close-up of his face. That's right. He liked that cover, and he uh he text he uh sent me a, a text on BlackBerry like you know the cover's dope blah blah, and that was the beginning of a side kind of our own personal rapport. So, you know, ended up being a foundational person. I mean, I think he along with Fifty Cent probably had the most covers during my reign. I think Nas was a little bit below that, but obviously, you know, a lot of times, you know, whenever it was a rough month, you would try to get a Jay Z cover because Jay was the one that was always relevant. You know, and it was always hard to get him to say yes and. You know, what made it different than 50, 50 was 50 would 50 would stand next to his artists and 
you know, he'd stand next to Banks so Banks could get a cover. He'd stand next to Yayo so Yayo could get a cover. But besides that Beanie Siegel cover, you know, Jay wouldn't stand next to the other artists. And, you know, it made it tougher to get him in the magazine as much as I wanted to. Being a fan of Jay-Z back then and covering the Rockefeller breakup, how did that feel as a fan? Man, it's the big it's a big deal. And I mean, it's still a big deal many years later, right? It was a huge thing. It was it's part of that 2005 um ascension that we had where we were the number one magazine. So um one of the biggest dramas was, you know, being so close with those guys. Uh I had a great rapport with Dame. I was cool with Biggs, obviously growing into a, a, a connection with Jay even though Jay, you know, kept his distance more back then. It was more about, you know, being in the studio while Dame was at the office most of the time. So again, mostly dealing with Dame, um, just starting to see that things were a little bit different or, you know, what's going on with these guys. And you would hear the rumors and they would deny the rumors and still doing business with them. So I had wrote some editorial, did something that pissed Dame off and called me to his office and Gave me the classic Dame curse out and then uh, pulled all Rockaware ads from Double XL, which was wow. huge, huge blow for us at the time because, you know, we were relying on hip hop clothing ads. So once again, you get faced with a problem, you have to fix it. So then the whole process was like, how do I get this? How do I, how do I, you know, get things back on page with Dame and get our Rockaware ads back? The business is being affected. So I think, you know, he stood out for months and months and didn't give us ads. And then, um, it came up with an idea once it became clear that they were starting different movements and it officially was a breakup. We ended up doing a cover with Dame and Cam um, with the uh, Dame Dash music group and what Dame was doing at the time and did a whole cover with Dame and, uh, Dame and Cam. And that helped build the relationship back and started getting the ads again. And then two months later, we did the, the infamous um, Jay-Z uh, presidential cover with LeBron, Kanye, Foxy Brown, um, and then a gatefold with the rest of the crew. Um, so yeah, we was knee deep covering one side of the story, you know, journalism, covering one side of the story and covering the other side of the story. You know, even when we did MJ 50 back in 03, uh, people forget that two months later we did a Murder Inc. cover because Murder Inc. got raided by the feds. They were the biggest story. We did a whole cover with Irvin Ja and uh, we put the the Public Enemy logo, uh, influenced by the Public Enemy logo, we put the whole silhouette of the, of the thing across their faces and they were wearing their Irving Jeffrey uh, fashion wear, and <laughs> Irving wow. loves that cover to this day. Because uh, you, you know, as journalism, as you know, we got to cover both sides of the story. So, I felt definitely connected to it and how tough it was for everybody involved, and, and still tough to this day. You know, um, yeah. that breakup, and I think it, it was definitely the hugest story of 2005, and we were at the forefront of it, uh, documenting the culture. Another funny story with that was, um, so after we do the Dame Cam. In that month in between, before we did the presidential cover, um, we kind of knew we were going to do that cover. We had started having the meetings with Jay. And originally that cover was going to be um, not LeBron, but the uh, guys from the New York, uh, New York Next, New York, New York, I'm mean, New Jersey Nets, I'm sorry, New Jersey Nets, uh, Vince Carter and uh, Jason Kidd at the time. So it's going to be Jay, Vince Carter, Jason Kidd, uh, Kanye cover or something like that. And then at the last minute, uh, Jay wanted LeBron instead. And mind you, I'm not the biggest, I mean, I'm a big sports fan, but I was not a big, like, um, never, I necessarily never been a super, like, um, uh, either college or high school fan, like knowledgeable of that ranking. I'm also was a pro a fan of pro leagues. Right. So I mm. kind of heard of LeBron, but I didn't know LeBron was this phenomenon. You know what I mean? I remember being at the office and um, my little brother was in the office one day. And so it, the way it's set up is that 
we're in this big office building in, in the back cave with no windows is my little area for double XL and slam magazine is in the back office and they have one window and LeBron came up to the office and all of a sudden I'm sitting in my office, my little brother and some big shadow comes behind my door. Like, oh, and my little brother's like, looks like he sees a ghost. He's like, holy shit. Da, da, da. He's all excited. And mind you, my brother grew up with me, so he's been around rappers his whole life. So he doesn't get phased. He knows Fat Joe. He knows blah blah. It's like, why? It's like, why are you freaking out over this? He's like, it's LeBron James, LeBron James, and LeBron. It was actually, I think it was the night he was getting drafted. It was like the rookie night. So it was on top of that, right? And I think the the cover was after year one of him at Cleveland when we did the cover. So I didn't know the significance of how big that was going to be. Uh, it it being um, it being a LeBron cover, um. But I remember um, that it was, we're setting the thing up and we were going to do it. It was the issue before the presidential cover came out. So we wanted to do a back page ad that kind of teased that the cover was coming. Right. Right. So we had an idea we was going to do, we was going to do the, uh, just show the Rockefeller chain. You know what I mean? The Rockefeller chain. Because I was our most famous, you know, most heralded uh, jewelry pieces. Uh, so just we'll do this dope um, shot of the rock chain. And it'll be iconic. Actually- Iconic. We got to come up with the perfect caption, right? So I'm racking my brain. I'm trying to come up with something, nothing sticking. And then I'm finally like, um, the chain remains. Because Naughty by Nature had a song called The Chain Remains. Because remember, Tretch used to wear the big, um, like he said it represented the brothers in jail. It was like a, like a padlock kind of chain. It was huge. Um, so he wrote a song. One of the Naughty by, Nature, Naughty by Nature albums, he had a song called The Chain Remains. So I was like, that's dope. The chain remains like no one's going to get where it comes from, but it just sounds dope. The chain remains. The chain remains. So then I told uh, the publisher at the time, Jonathan Rheingold, you know, he had a meeting. With, he was going over to Rockefeller. I was like, yeah, tell him uh, I want to call it the chain remains, blah, blah, blah. So then Jonathan came back and told me he told Jay that. And then Jay just started mumbling to himself, doing his Rain Man thing. And he was like, chain remains, chain remains, chain remains. And then you fast forward. I get married. Uh, summer 2005 in June I'm on my honeymoon the issue comes out um, at the same time the issue came out I'm in Antigua on my honeymoon all of a sudden I think it's Hot 97 they got this exclusive it's the Kanye Diamonds remix and Jay has a verse the chain remains the game is intact blah blah blah, blah. so obviously he was inspired by um, that ad that caption the chain remains the game is intact uh-huh. the name is mine I'll take blame for that the pressure's on, but guess who ain't gonna crack? <laughs> Pardon me, I had to laugh at that. How could you falter when you're the rock at your balls? I had to get off the boat so I could walk on water. This ain't no tall order, this is nothing to me. Difficult takes a day, impossible takes a week. I do miss in my sleep. I sell kilos of coke. I'm guessing I could sell CDs. I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. If you look at all my old XXLs, it's usually a it's usually a lyric or a title from another other artist's album. You know, that's the ego trip book of rap list kind of nerd stuff where it's like I wanted the headlines to reflect, you know, it could be the blueprint. If it fits something else other than Jay-Z, you would see an article and it would say the blueprint. It could be an article on Scarface if it felt <clears throat> that the piece was about that. So it informed everything. It actually informed the whole editorial vision where I was trying to always find a lyric or a title or something that symbolized another component of hip hop that applied to another artist. So that's that's actually the DNA of a lot of it when you look at it. And you, you know, sometimes with the cover lines, you would stretch farther, but definitely in terms of like the feature well, usually most of those headlines were driven from other songs or titles or albums of, from other artists.
What do you think was the legacy of that period in your career from an editorial space? Man, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I jokingly say it's my Fonzie era, right? It's like the cool era. It's like the era where I, I grew as a man. Um, I grew as a businessman. Um, and I created what I think is, is was the best hip hop magazine. Um, I'm proud of that run. Um, from 99 to 2008, um, I did about 100 or so issues. Um, I think the covers stand out. I think it's a lot of timeless content. I'm honored when the covers come up. I'm honored when, you know, these rap collectors tag me on Instagram. And um, when I see people refer to still the articles that were written like 10, 20 years ago, um, it's very humbling. You know, it's very much about me. But I look at it also like everything happened there. Like I grew as a man. I got, you know, I came into it at, at what, 28 years old. Is this sort of still like very obsessive, career-driven you know, fearless, but, you know, uh, <laughs> troubled and trauma-ridden young man uh, <laughs> drawing his work, drawing every day into his work and damn near having high blood pressure and an ulcer and these sort of things. And then um, falling in love and getting married and, and sharing that with the world at the same time. I'm in this very competitive um, magazine battle and, and business battle with a, with, the, with a place where, you know, it got real and ramifications and things could get, you know, going on a street level even or a legal level or criminal level um it got real so um going through all those ups and downs of that and growing and and, and learning the business and becoming successful and being prideful that this wasn't just hip-hop success this was you know as successful as a rolling stone or anything that gq or anything else a vanity fair and that i was being looked at that way and making that type of money and being respected and um and growing. So, you know, it, it means a lot. It means a lot. And looking back on that work and being very proud of it um, and, and achieving what I want to do, which was, it was showed it that I could create something that would be more uh, connected to hip hop culture and be more impactful um, than what came before it. And I think it's, it still holds up. What about what came after it going from this position of editor to producing TV? What were some of those challenges and pivoting from magazine making to produce some TV? I was, well, I was still, I was still at Double XL when we did the TV thing. Um, <clears throat> and that was pretty much um, exciting to show that, that the growth. And I think it was more so with my brotherhood, with my guys, um, that we could put our humor and our, our point of view, not just through magazines, but through this medium of television, you know, which I'm a kid who grew up again, watching all these TV shows and Norman Lear comedies and everything. And, and what is this new thing? Reality television. And we were at the apex of it. We were at the beginning of it. Um, you know, Flavor of Love was our lead in, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we did a partnership with uh, Kevin, Ken, Ken Mock, I believe his name was. He produced America's Next Top Model. So we were, we were working with real people, real TV professionals um, creating White Rapper Show. And, you know, and, and being authentic to the culture and hiring MC Search to be the host and and that show being successful, um, it meant a lot. It just showed the range. It showed that we felt like we could be in that in that world with anybody else, and that we were smart, um, creative dudes that weren't just we were more than hip hop journalists. And you know, we put so much of our our collective viewpoint and our DNA into the each element. You know, down to you know the, him saying "step off" when he eliminates a, a, a step off when he eliminates a contestant, and that. We do step off like it's a roach spray because it reminded us of off like and, and create a and build a roach spray, a giant roach spray with step off on it and things like that. You know what I mean? Like down to every detail. And then, you know, um, 
even doing the racism book, which leads to Miss Rap Supreme and and trying something different, even though it didn't do as well as White Rapper Show. Um, you know, we had a whole place and and a whole legacy connected to the hip hop uh, reality show world. You know, Mona Scott was the judge. Her and Missy Elliott were the judge judges of our final episode of uh, Miss Rap Supreme, and helped pick the winner of that. And then Mona Scott goes on to you know put her footwork and in, <laughs> into the whole. A reality television world and Bill's love of hip hop and these different franchises. So, you know, I'm very proud of our role in that and the work that we did. And I felt like our stuff was again reality shows, but I didn't feel like we were we were exploitive of people. I felt like it still had integrity. I think that we, you know, we had some some silly jokes and and we poke fun, but at the same time, I don't think we uh, exploited anybody. I think we still move with integrity. And I'm proud of the the television work that we did back then. And you know, it was hand in hand of like I could be running this hip hop magazine at such a high level, but we're creating these books as a collective. We're creating these television shows as a collective and that, you know, we're, we're, we're really putting our impact out there to the world. Did you clash at any point with the network or at any point Harris publications in any ways in which you wanted to push the culture and have any conversations moving the culture forward between the network and Harris publications? What were some of the challenging moments in pivoting? Uh, well, the challenging moment that led to ultimately me being fired was that, again, going back to those sort of hip hop advertising, the business had changed and a lot of those businesses weren't, you know, the Sean Johns and the, and the clothing lines weren't putting as much money or weren't as prevalent to the culture at that time. And, you know, we weren't making those same millions on the side of the business. And even though I was selling a lot of the magazines still at that time, uh, the handwriting was on the wall that it seems like you know, print is going in a tough direction. You know, I was a little bit ahead of the curve, but um, the handwriting was beginning to be on the wall that the business was starting to change and online was really taking off and um, print consumption was starting to go down. I hadn't felt it yet. Again, my numbers were still great. And I think Excel even after me survived another, you know, six months to a year probably of still doing really good numbers. It took longer for the Excel to kind of feel that 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 pinch but uh, I was making a lot of money. And I was like, in you know, many years of my uh, time there. And again, going back to the sports analogy, I always feel like a lot of times you look at a star player, eventually they fall out uh, with the organization, you know, a Tom Brady with the Patriots and the ownership. And as much as you guys may love each other, it, get, it gets the egos get involved. And it's like, well, whose identity is this? Is, is this great? Because this guy's the star. Is it great because I'm the owner? Is this is is the coach get the credit? Who gets the credit? You know, and it's like you start to grow apart. And um, they made that decision. And um, you know, at the same time, to be frank with you, uh, with Ego Trip, we were growing apart as, as brothers. It's hard to be in business with your friends. And at the end of the female rapper show, we started to look at things in different ways. And I met with Sasha, and I was like. I don't think I could do this anymore. I kind of want to move forward. I love you guys, but it just doesn't feel like we have the same um, chemistry with each other. And um, the other guys seem like they want to go in a new direction. And, you know, I don't really think I know my place in it. So what a lot of people don't really uh, correlate is that I quit. Uh, I mean, I got fired from XXL and also kind of removed myself from Ego Trip around the same time. So now I'm at a point where now where it's like 2008 and I'm just like, well, what am I going to do with myself? Like, What's my what's my life now? Because the, every the foundational things of my life have now all changed, at least for that time being. Um, so then I just started um, freelancing a little bit, and eventually the idea of Rap Radar came to mind with Paul Rosenberg, and we met. And you know maybe I should do a website, do a blog. That's where the culture's at right now. 
um, but there's no leadership in it. There's no voice leading it. Maybe that could be something I could do. So it starts that transition there. But, you know, that was a pivotal time in my life and career. That was kind of the big turning point. still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast why not become a patron of fly fidelity at patreon.com slash fly fidelity becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including patron updates offers and discounts a monthly secret podcast early access and so much more How do you think the blog era informed the beginning of Rap Raider? And how do you think it sort of lent a hand and helped evolve its direction over time? I mean, the Rosenthal's covered it well in the blog era, how SK and I write, you know, was looked at as the leader of the space. I remember being at XXL in uh, 2005-ish, 6-ish, and all the all my editors are on Not Right all day. And I'm like, what's Not Right? So it's like, you know, we have beat the source finally. And like, instead of getting the trophy or the cake that I thought I was going to get, the game has shifted and was just like, okay, but now it's not about that. You could have the top magazine, but what's going on with your website? <laughs> you know, everybody's online. So that's when I really put my energy towards xxlmag.com. And we did a lot of great work over there and recruited a lot of great voices. Uh, you know, DJ drama and Sycamore and all these people had different columns and um, hired Brendan Frederick who ended up running genius he was a genius for me. And he, he said, Hey, this SK guy runs not right. Um, but we think he could come over here and run XXL mag for us also. And we did that and we met him and we hired him. Um, and you know, at the time we, when I got fired, he was still over there on running XXL mag. Um, but then what happened was as it shifted, I think, um, they all started doing business with complex and complex was distributing those sort of new music cartel blocks. And to me, that's when the blog era, the business of it really kicked in. So like you're saying, that's up and running, but I realized that I feel like I can approach it differently than what those guys are doing. Um, I can make that transition and I could bring more of a journalism kind of feel to it. You know what I mean? And like also approach it like a job where I was noticing that, you know, they would block stuff at erratic hours and I will like, I want to approach it like a job. So let's say a record leaks like three o'clock in the morning, right? Everybody's in a rush to put it up. You know, Kanye from the studio or Drake from the studio, you know, just dropped something 2 a.m. And they post it on the blog and I was like, and then it would go to sleep and then they probably wake up the next day at like 11 or noon and start posting again. My thing was, I'm going to like go to sleep at 11 or noon. I'm going to get up top of the morning, 5, 6 a.m. And I'm going to make sure by like noon, we have like 10 posts up and we start the day, we, we take control of the day. So even though you may go to bed at two in the morning, thinking you beat me or you have your victory from two to six, by the time you wake up, I've started the conversation and I have 10 posts up and everybody's talking about Rap Radar and now you have to catch up. So you're kind of behind. So I kind of looked at it like if I brought that consistency and this sort of authoritativeness that, that Rap Radar kind of carved its own lane in, in this competitive blog era. And, you know, I think eventually it did happen for us that we built our own identity in it, you know, and, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, when the story gets told, we're not lumped in that group because in some ways I feel like it was kind of an outlier 
in terms of what was going on, but was able to build something that was was really you know impactful and successful in my book. I always tell this story about how um, you know if you look at the XXL years, I have all this like um, you know playing this these industry games of power and you know again like I was saying you don't see me or you don't talk to me or I only deal with you when it's time to do business and you know aggressiveness of the business at the time of you know these these phone calls and you know you do this for me I do this for you you know blah blah all this aggression and and distance. And when I went, to, when I took over and started doing 2009, 2010 Rap Radar, I get this office space and I'm kind of still trying to run things the same way where I create phone lines for everybody, but then I have my own secret phone line where, you know, uh, people can't call me. They'd have to have a secret number to call me directly. And um, I have a little sliding door in my little loft and it's not even a real door to slam. It's just like a little sliding plastic door. And I, I'm, I stay in there. So, you know, BDOT's meeting new new generation of artists and he's inviting them up to the office and listening to their new music and stuff. And most times I wouldn't come out and shake Macklemore's hand or meet Macklemore and meet whoever the new artist was at the time. And I remember um, TDE got real mad at me because like Punch and all those guys are there. And, you know, at the time, J-Rock is the top artist they're pushing. But there is like a young K-Dot, young Kendrick Lamar. Um, and, you know, everybody has respect for me because I'm, you know, the double XL guy. They want to meet the double XL guy. Like they've heard of this guy. Like they they grew up reading my content and I didn't come out and meet them. I didn't come out and shake their hand. And I realized that, you know, I can't, I, I can't do business this way anymore. This business doesn't work. You know, you look at um J. Cole, his partner, Ibrahim. You know, these guys, business partners are kind of their younger peers. They're they're similar in age. They're not these old industry executives. You know what I mean? They're they're young dudes like these artists. They're Oliver's with Drake and Future the Prince. And they're 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 not playing these old industry games. You know, they they believe in accessibility. They believe in like being treated with respect and being open and having those real conversations. And it made me change my whole approach of how I did business and realize that this new era is not functioning that way. Do you ever miss that lack of accessibility? <laughs> that's a great question that's a great question um of course you do but i think that the good thing about being recognized in this era is it's mostly with love it's mostly with respect it's mostly with um acknowledgement and that makes me feel good you know i think that you know when you get recognized more by people um you can now get better at reading people's energy quicker people's intent um you know and, and understanding what that interaction is going to take or in, 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 entail, right? And um, right. the thing I notice now is is that people say my full name, Elliot Wilson, when they see me, and they say they usually say something about some interview they saw of mine that they that they liked, and you know that makes me feel good. It makes me feel motivated to do more great work. You know, it makes me feel like I'm still creating impactful work i think there's still always this thing in hip-hop of the fear of falling off the fear of feeling like you're not relevant you know and now i look at a challenge where um we're now at a phase of hip-hop where uh the veterans are still relevant right you know Nas and hip boy make a record it's relevant um it's impactful but in my book it's not impactful enough in some ways and i still want to be doing work that like puts more eyeballs on it and still like delivers bigger numbers you know a lot of times now the things like that are respected and impactful but can't be the biggest thing and i i think that we're going to get to the level where that's going to change you know i think the the veteran thing could put out the biggest record you know what i mean i think it should be it, it could be treated that way so i look at it that like i look like i have 
as much as I may have had like these great interviews, the Jay-Z's or the Drake's or the Will Smith's and those type of things. Like I can, I, there's, a, there's a future great interview for me. There's another great interview for me down the road, not future, the future, <laughs> future, the rapper who's a friend, but uh, you know, another rapper in the future or another artist in the future, another great moment in the future that I can still do and then and still deliver that and be motivated by that. Cause I don't know what that is. Is it, is it a, a Kendrick Lamar? Is it a Beyonce? Is it a Rihanna? Like who knows? I mean, I put the effort in to try to make, you know, things happen, but um, you know, I, I'm still motivated. The idea that I could still do something that could be just as important as anything I've done in the past. So, but yeah, being recognized, is, it, it's, it's good. Cause I, you know, love of hip hop is, is still very much a part of me. And I think that that's, that's important to, to be able to deal with that, that I've worked hard enough to put myself in a leadership position. So I need to, I need to carry that, you know? Jewel runners, the product of many cruel summers. In the description was fitting, they say it's two gunners. Slap chick keys out your cheek until you true hummers. After seeing the Hellcat scream, cause we don't do Hondas. But we do Benny Hondas, taking your baby mama. She hostage me in the homage, she kiss it to pay me homage. She work it like I deserve it, she move like the perfect pervert. They say Mississippi burning, I'm sipping, sir, beating sherbet. Watch the world go to hell as I'm laughing, saying it's perfect. Catch me after Sunday service, disturbing the church's workers. Tell the deacon we ain't speaking, need money, his prayer's worthless. I can tell through my alertness, he's nervous about his perch. Hey, in the name of Jesus, the reefer, I serve a perfect. My guy hide in the skies, he fly over Earth's surface. Fly satellite hiders, I'm looking at Earth's circus. Keep your eyes on the prize and don't let the devil coerce you. I feel like one of the best things about me is that I built a lot of trust. I feel like I'm the most trusted voice in this culture. Um, but again, I think that it's tough now to get artists to feel like they're going to give you that access to sit with them on your terms of your platform when they can have their own platform, get their own radio show, get their own situation. So it's it's a tricky, it's a tricky nuance, but I, I'm up for the challenge. You know, I'm up, I'm up for the challenge. And I think I've still been able to you know, create content in this era that that stand the test of time. And I think that, you know, again, it's about keeping those relationships with these artists going so that they understand that maybe, you know, it's all about timing to me. You know, maybe it hasn't been the right time to have that sit down, to have that discussion. And also maybe think about a different way we should have that discussion. Maybe it isn't a formal sit down. Maybe it's something where we're, you know, in a different location or something where we're, you know, you know, Tizo Touchdown wanted to do an interview where we weren't sitting down. He wanted to stand up, you know, like, so, okay, we'll stand up, you know, like, you know, it could be something as simple as that. Or, you know, just figuring out how, I think to, with today's artists, I think to a certain point, it has to feel more collaborative than it ever has felt. You know what I'm saying? They can't mm -hmm. feel like just doing a solid for you. You know, everybody's their own brand. Everybody's different businesses. So it's really about trying to find partnerships and, and be collaborative with each other and everybody feeling like, you know, it, it's worked out great. I remember, you know, uh, the early days of Crown, the live interview series. And I think Nicki Minaj might have been the first act that was like insisting that she had final approval of uh, the, that not, you know, it's a live show, so she can't control that, right? So whatever happens live, happens live. But for the video that would come out, um, she wanted to have, you know, some input on the final approval of what, you know, the video that would go out would look like. And, you know, back then it's all, you know, I'm all journalism. No way. I'm not doing it with nobody. But, you know, I was like, you know what? That's reasonable. Let's figure this out. You know, we can, we can mutually agree on it. 
And I remember we did it and then we sent her the video to her and she had no changes, you know? And it was just like, wow, okay. You know, like artists want to, you know, they don't, they want to feel like they're still, they're still, they're not losing their power, but at the same time, they want to feel, they understand when done right, that they have to be vulnerable enough to get something out of someone else or collaborate with someone else to get the best of them out there. You know what I'm saying? That's what Drake did in the process with us. That's what Jay did in the process with us, where obviously these are huge entities that could have a measure of final approval that could change things. But I stand by it when you watch those interviews and the final thing that you guys see is as authentic as it would be if they had no input. You know, the, the final thing is something I could be proud of and say, you know, this is to me their best interview, uh, a career defining interview, you know, something that truly stands the test of time. Was it always a smooth segue transitioning from Rap Radar to Rap Radar podcast? Uh, well, what the challenge of Rap Radar podcast was um, understanding that me and Brian are two journalists. How's this going to work? Um, but then us building this chemistry where, you know, we're both journalists and we both prepare our questions separately. We both have different viewpoints of what we're connecting to with the music. I think the secret formula to why uh, Rap Radar podcast is good is that me and BDOT really do love the music and study the music and in this sort of ego trippy kind of nerd way of really dissecting the music and really, you know, using that as the foundational thing of what the, is going to build the conversation um, and doing the research outside of that. Um, and again, you know, the thing also is that speaking of relationships, that most of the, most of what you see is us doing our own booking. I've never had like that magic booker who's like helping me, you know, get artists. It's usually my relationship or, you know, sometimes BDOT's relationships and most, a lot of times both our relationships, which are very different sometimes with artists and, you know, us doing our own bookings for these, these, these interviews, you know, and, and putting the work in, um, and in terms of my evolution or my connection to artists, you know, it starts from this adversarial thing of like, you know, again, being the person who's going to tell them the truth about their art, whether they like it or not, and, and may get threatened by it and may have these dust ups and incidents through the years. And, um, to then, you know, having more empathy and respect for artists who, you know, we always say, you know, you put yourself into the, your art and um, that should still be dealt with respect. You know, even if I don't like something, I should be constructive about it and be fair to that person and not, not attack them personally and be, be mindful of, you know, it's, it's tough to be an artist and artists as Erica Badu said, are sensitive about their shit and put stuff out there and, you know, they have to believe it's their best thing or else they shouldn't put it out. Um, and you, your, 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 your gift with the fact that you may have to be the one that tells them that that's not true and, and deal with what comes with that. And then now in this personal era where I'm being recognized and they're being recognized, um, how important it is for the culture. If you see us sit down with a Jay-Z again, or you see me sit down with Drake and how important that is and what our roles are in this culture and how important it is for us to be who we are in this space. So, you know, it's been a, it's been a hell of a ride, but at the end of the day, you know, like the same way they say in life is that you know, relationships are a most important thing. You know, this is this is the epitome of it in this space that we're in, you know, hip hop generation wise, um, because, again, I've been so much a part of this since the early 90s, you know, and it feeling like even now with the stuff I'm doing with um the stuff I started at Patreon.com, uh, Elliot Wilson Experience, you know, with the stuff I did with Big Boy and Khaled and things, I wanted to kind of do something that kind of just shows almost this sort of like, who my what my life's kind of like that I could go to Stanconia and just talk to Big Boy and uh you're sort of like feeling like a fly on the wall that the camera's just on and I don't intro into the camera and I don't outro into the camera and it's just like you're catching this 
interaction and you're seeing our history and my rapport and I could go to Callis golf tournament and you know I may end up having this amazing conversation with Scarface and I didn't even know I was going to see Scarface and you know to sort of capture that you know I'm Elliot Wilson when I leave my house and that's that's <laughs> that's what could happen or if I go to this event this is the energy that could happen and that you know relationships are everything you know and again it doesn't mean that everything is always rosy and good but it's just really about you know, being being honest and being forthright, forthright and being accessible and, and and leading with respect. You know, I lead with respect. You know, I could I could deal with I could I could uh, counter disrespect, but I lead I lead with respect. And most people give me that energy in this era now too, and I appreciate that. What do you think makes a great interview? What What are the qualities today that for Elliot Wilson? What is it that makes for an exceptional one to one conversation? Uh, preparation. Um, and the ability to, uh, and I'm, I'm still very guilty of it, as my wife would tell me, of not interrupting and, and being a great listener um, and understanding that um, you, 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 don't have to, you don't have to go chronological. You can, you can go different places with it. If, you feel, if you're prepared, you're going to be able to follow up the person's train of thought that it's more about your subject. Like Noah said, in terms of the subject, it's about the subject more than you. Um, and not losing sight of that. I think a lot of times in the new generation, it's a, it's a need to kind of prove that, you know, and I had that when I was younger, like jumping in and trying to prove that I'm, I could tell you this about yourself or this, blah, blah. But it's like, you know, if somebody's gracious enough to give you time and they're on your platform, the same way you do it when, when you do with your guests is, is to try to give them the comfortability to tell their story um, and know when to get out the way, know when to challenge, know when to get out the way. Um, but I think that comes with the ability to to listen and and by listening, you know, I think the goal ultimately is is with the listening and the preparation you already have and the great follow-up questions is to feel like you're turning the interview into a conversation. It isn't just like these dramatic, you know, the, this is the question and this is the answer. Right. This is the, like, it's just, it feels free flowing. It feels like a conversation. It feels like people having an earnest exchange. And I think the best interviews have those moments. And it's, as long as, you know, how long you're able to sustain those moments, I think is, 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 uh, is what makes something special. But yeah, I think it's it's those it's a combination of all those things. And we're talking about a true transcend or power within that, if done right. And I'm wondering, with respect to power today, what do you think constitutes power in hip hop media in 2023? Wow. Um I think I think it could be in it could be your own platform in many ways. I think that's what I'm trying to do with Delhi Wilson experience or just making sure that people connect to myself individually my main brand outside of also rap radar podcast and even though that's doing very well you know connecting it back to me i think that a lot of times now people believe in the personal branding of somebody and what they represent you know understanding that without any arrogance that elliot wilson is a brand you know i've earned that um and i think that no matter what i do wherever i work next or whatever i partner with you're bringing elliot wilson to the table and if elliot wilson is is, is telling himself that he's one of these people who's been this pillar of hip hop culture and, and wants to be one of the greatest and strongest voices in it, um, that everything I do has to encompass that. And I have to carry it that way. Um, and I think that's what that connectability. And I think that that, that gives you some form of, um, I guess, celebrity, but at the end of the day, I think it's more about just individual, individual branding as opposed to, you know, when I came up where you may be looking for this other place that this job is going to, you know, I thought the source was going to validate me, right? That that would be the dream job that would validate me. But, you know, I learned from those experiences that myself was the person who had to get his own validation and that, that your individual brand, individual that you are, 
really determines everything. And if you could pick one thing that's helped you be successful today, that's sort of been with you for every period of your career, what do you think that thing would be? I think my passion. I think my passion, my passion, my drive. Um, passion, drive, integrity. But I think it starts with passion. It just you have to just believe in it and love it. And again, it still feels like, you know, um, this is something I would do for free, but I want to make as much money as I can doing it <laughs> in whatever way that looks like. Um, you know, the, I still love it. I still love hip hop culture. Like, you know, and I get inspired. Like when Noah says, like, I'm that guy who still will listen to everything, try to list everything that come out, comes out Thursday at midnight, but I still can go in the corner and recite Onyx lyrics with you. You know, I, I definitely try to find that balance of like, you know, I want to, I, I still want to find the next thing. I still want to discover what's, what's it and what, and why, and understand the things that I don't necessarily like, you know, and understand why that's working, why that's resonating in hip hop culture. I'm I'm still curious, even even if I'm not connected to something, I can still be curious about it and still try to understand it. And I and thankfully I haven't lost that. And I think it's just a passion that that I'm I feel indebted to this thing that that's meant so much to me. You know, the, the fact that I could feel like I'm somebody who maybe recognizes as much as some of the rappers I grew up idolizing, you know, that I'm in, that I may be more known than they are. You know, it's very humbling. You know, it's very humbling to feel like I've done work that continues to be um, impactful. And it just gives me more desire to, to want to keep going, man. I definitely don't want to uh, stop going. I definitely want to still uh, <laughs> rap rate a podcast. We got about uh, five more bookings we have for this new season. I'm excited to see who these last five bookings are going to be. And, uh, I'm going to get off this call right now and, and try to get an, another big interview. And um, this is me, man. And, you know, and I think that the beauty of it is if, um, if you keep, if you keep doing things, no one can really tell you, if you keep, if you keep achieving things or doing things or impacting things, in some ways people can't really tell your story, you know, it's a to be continued, you know. show my appreciation for this podcast i wish i could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when fly fidelity updates because it's so great but i don't think there's a way i can do any of those things uh-oh you're wrong <laughs> subscribe on spotify apple podcasts and soundcloud and never miss an episode find us on twitter instagram and facebook my people thought you with me where you were